This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and joining me again is Jacob. Hello, everyone. You may remember us. About a year ago, we were co-hosting Books and Nachos way before that whole James Bond diversion that Brock and Stewart did. We were here talking comic books and Batman, and over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we are back discussing comic book movies with DC Comics having a big summer with Man of Steel coming up. We are looking at some other DC properties, including... Constantine, or should I say, I guess because we're going to be discussing some graphic novels, I guess I should switch over to saying Constantine? Yes, we're going with the DC pronunciation now, Constantine. I do find it interesting that we're here. You you kind of surprised me at the end of Constantine, or Constantine, since that's the movie, because you're like, let's read some of these comics and review them. And I, I think that is the comic industry's dream, is trying to turn these millions and millions of people who watch the movies into comic book fans. It doesn't happen often, so I guess that movie accomplished something. It got you to want to read the comics, and that's why we're here. Yeah, I thought that they really did a good job of building Constantine's world. I'm using the pronunciation for the movie, and I wanted to know more about him. I wanted to know more about where he came from, this world he inhabited. I'm always attracted to stories about angels and demons. I'm a Clive Barker fan. And so the world he inhabited was a world I wanted to know more about. And in doing my research as the multimedia movie comic book fan, I found out that the writers specifically based their movie off of two Constantine graphic novels, Original Sins and Deadly Habits. And being graphic novels with Batman, several of the Batman movies were based on specific graphic novels, such as The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. So I thought it would be interesting to see the source material that became adapted to the Keanu Reeves film. Now, Constantine, or Hellblazer as the comic was called, it just recently ended at number 300. And DC is now rebooted into the more friendly DC universe. Originally, this was a very graphic comic, swearing and sex. We'll talk about some of that sex, I think. But it's a series I've always dabbled in it. I'd always come back to it and read a story arc here and there. It's one I've never read through all 300 issues. But as I mentioned on that Now Playing podcast, the character actually started, if you want to see the beginning of this character, you got to go to Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing is another character that we will eventually get to on Now Playing. I've seen both both the movies and the syndicated TV show from the 80s, but never read a single comic book about the scientist-turned-plant-creature. So, a character that started with Swamp Thing, that would actually be a ding against it in my book. Well, I love that Swamp Thing. It was written by Alan Moore, his run. Alan Moore, I re- re- I'm sure he will talk about him more as we get deeper into this TC retrospective with V for Vendetta, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Watchmen, prolific writer. What's interesting about Constantine, when it finally became its own series in Hellblazer, as it was called, Alan Moore had a hand in, in picking this writer, Jamie Delano, in the mid-80s to really the early 90s. It's 
what's called the British Invasion, where all these British writers were coming over and writing American comics. You had Alan Moore, Warren Ellis, Garth Ennis. We'll talk about him as far as Constantine goes. And Jamie Delano was picked by Alan Moore to come in and do this series. Uh, the art as well, another UK artist. Uh, I know a lot of his work from Judge Dredd from the 2000 AD anthology. So Jamie Delano, he's British, he's handpicked, but... Is he known for anything? He's known for Hellblazer. Yeah, this is probably what he's most well known for these days. Well, listeners, we'll be getting into Original Sins this podcast and then discussing Dangerous Habits later in the week in another podcast. And what surprised me is when I went to get Original Sins, they had said on the commentaries that it was a graphic novel. And so I talked to you, Jacob, as the comic expert. All right, where do I get this graphic novel? And you're like, it's just the first issues. And that really threw me. I mean, we kind of had that with Batman Year One, where it was just inserted in the middle of the Batman comic run. But normally when I think graphic novel, I think either a miniseries that is limited run, kind of like The Dark Knight Returns, or something in that prestige format like all the graphic novels Marvel did, like God Loves Man kills yeah for me graphic novel is just a catch-all term for a collection of comics it could be original stuff it could be multiple issues combined here this is definitely in the categories of just multiple issues combined that thing as we go through this we're gonna have a hard time pinning down a central storyline to original sense for better or for worse yeah that was something else that got me is I think I've become used to reading more recent comic books where it's like the writers are writing for the trade paperbacks. They're putting them in five or six issue arcs that can be neatly packaged, commoditized, and sold. So when I'm reading this and I'm like, they're based off a graphic novel, and I realize what we're going to be talking about here are five or six distinctly separate stories that have a couple of running threads, but very little. It really does just feel much like when I've read the first issues of Spider-Man or Fantastic Four way back in the day, just really episodic individual serial storytelling. I think in the 80s, when this came about, you started to see that shift from doing more single-issue stories, maybe two-story arcs that I remember reading a lot of my dad's old comics from the 50s, and you just pick up any comic and read it. There's really not a lot of backstory. There's really no continuity between issues. Just each one's done in one story. I think around in the mid-80s, especially because of Watchmen, because of Dark Knight Returns, you started to see this move to telling more complete stories. So we're going to take four, five, six issues to tell one story. And nowadays, where everything gets published in a trade paperback, you just expect that. You cannot just pick up a random comic. So I, I see this as kind of in that in-transition period, but definitely with these stories and Original Sins, there's a couple that might go over two issues, but it's almost written so you could pick up any issue and read it. So they've collected issues here, but... It's not a whole story. These are just happen to be uh, some comics combined under one cover. Yeah, and for example, the first arc in Original Sins is entitled Hunger, and it's a two-issue arc. And it describes an African hunger demon that has escaped, and it causes people to starve while they gorge themselves with their heart's desire, be it food or comic books. One guy dies literally eating comic books. The demon was released by Gary Lester, who freed it from a child to whom it was bound. And unable to stop it, Lester goes to his roguish friend John Constantine, an occult expert and general asshole. And Constantine teams with powerful voodoo magician Papa Midnight and is able to stop the demon, but only by binding it to Gary Lester. Constantine's old friend becomes damned to a painful death, but the demon is stopped. 
And this is my first reading of Constantine on the page, not having read any of the back issues of Swamp Thing. And I don't know how reading just the first issue would go, but reading these two, I was right in there. I was seeing that the Constantine on screen really matched kind of this Machiavellian personality that I was seeing in Constantine on the page. And... It's a wonderful little damnation story. Yeah, and one of the things that really sticks out to me is the writing style of Delano. It really reminds me of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's very prose-heavy. I think Alan Moore does it better. I mean, Moore at times, it's almost poetic, the way he writes his pose as either thoughts or just these narration captions. Delano is definitely trying to bring that feel. Swamp Thing was known as sophisticated suspense, and Delano really wants to take this character, Hell blazer constantine and give it a different vibe this is if you're expecting batman or superman no this is something totally different it is more literary i think not just because there's more prose but just the way it's written it's not for the superhero fan i agree completely i was taken immediately to mostly watchmen although to some degree v for vendetta and even some of the batman stuff that we read previously but all of the word panels that they have, the way it really reads a lot like prose fiction, because there's so much setting of the scene. And in most comics I've read, the scene is set by the artist, based on words that the writer has written previously. Normally, you don't have actions that are occurring on the panel described in prose next to that panel, but it really did this, and I'll be honest, it took me about three times as long to read each of these issues of Constantine we're going to talk about, or Hellblazer, I'm sorry, than it would take me to read a normal comic because these are dense. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I literally didn't allot enough time in one evening. <laughs> I <could have> said, <laughs> I'm going to read these issues of Hellblazer. Oh, wait, I guess I'm going to finish them tomorrow. <laughs> Same thing happened to me. I haven't read these early issues, so I was taken back again. It's very British, in my opinion. Just the way it's written, having read other comic book writers from the British Invasion, they just had a certain knack. Neil Gaiman with Sandman. I mean, it's very dense, as you said. Now, what did you think of the art? I recognize this art from Judge Dredd, which was a UK comic, but that's from a weekly comic. Yeah, I would expect it to be a little bit rougher. You got to get through it quickly because it is coming out once a week. I feel the art here, when it's focused on humans, uh, it's just so scratchy, but I do love the way demons are portrayed. I feel it does play better for that supernatural element. Wow, I'm diametrically opposed to what you've just said in every way. But I'll tell you, my 80s comics... For listeners who haven't been with us a long time, I'm more of a Marvel Comics guy than a DC guy. Almost every DC comic I've ever read, I've reviewed right here on Books and Nachos. And so my late 80s reading, which is when I really got into comics, was all Marvel. And that was right around the time Todd McFarlane started to come into play and the art really started to become detailed and change. And so I didn't have a lot of exposure to this kind of level art. To me, this looks a lot like 70s art, but this comic came out in 88. But what I was taken back to is cheaper comics. And specifically, at one point, I went back and read the entire run of Nightbreed spinoff comics based off of the Clive Barker movie. And those had some pretty rough art. But I saw that same kind of style and same kind of color palette being used here. And you talk about demons. Nightbreed was all about the demons. And one of my big disappointments in Nightbreed and Hellblazer is that I feel the demons 
are either too imaginative or not imaginative enough. I can't decide because there's no theme to the demons. The demons are whatever the artist dreamt up in a peyote-fueled <laughs> fever dream. Not that I'm saying these artists were on peyote, but just that kind of randomness to it. It never makes me feel like there's a cohesive universe. And being a movie guy and everything, where characters are designed so that they could look like they come from the same place, when you have demons that are sometimes just octopi, or demons that don't even have a shape, and every panel they're twisting and morphing to something else, that's something I read in Nightbreed, it's something that I will see later in Hellblazer. And so I really like the scratchy noir feel of the humans, but every time I saw a demon, it either was way too much the standard biblical representation of a devil or something so surreal that it never came across as scary. And why I've never found horror comics to be scary is, so I'm supposed to be scared of the yellow polka dotted octopus? Well, different taste, I guess, which is often the case with us on either Now Playing or Books and Nachos. One of the things that really sticks out to me in these first two arcs is how well it sets up Constantine as a bastard. Like, this friend comes to him in help, and, you know, covered in bugs and cockroaches crawling all over him, comes to him for help. And Constantine's pretty much, you're screwed, dude. I'm gonna bind this demon to you, and you're stuck with it. You're dead. It really sets a tone for the character right off the bat. I love how they do this, because I think I figured out by the end of the first issue that Gary Lester was a dead man. If you look at it from a morality tale kind of way, it's poetic. Gary Lester freed a demon. The demon killed people. In order to put it away, Lester has to die. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, especially if the few is the person who caused the problem. It's standard horror movie mentality, especially if you go to some of those morality tales like the Tales from the Crypt type of episodes. But the comic teases that ending out to you. And Constantine, he hints around about it, but it's really not until the last few pages of the second issue where you see him literally strapping Lester into an electric chair. Yes, that electric chair they made such a big deal about in the movie. It's actually in here. I had that callback. Oh, there's Papa Midnight's chair. And he's being strapped in it, and Constantine is lying to his friend, telling him everything's going to be okay, knowing he's just lying and killing a good friend of his, and he has to do it. And I don't even take it as a ding against Constantine, because he's not doing it because he's Dexter and he just wants to kill his friend. He's doing it because he needs to stop a demon and this is the only way to do it. And I think he gets what I get that in certain ways, Gary Lester deserves it. But the fact that he can look his friend in the eye, lie to him, then bind a demon to him and kill him is cold. And then after that, we go into a different issue and you were talking about the British humor and... V for Vendetta and the Alan Moore, and that all really socked me in the gut in issue three, the second story arc called Going For It, where yuppie demons have come to London, and on the eve of Margaret Thatcher's re-election, the soul market is soaring and they're cleaning up, but Constantine stops them by making a deal to sell his own soul, and the demon, knowing Constantine's too savvy to sell his soul, thinks that the election's gonna swing the other way, and the demon market's gonna bottom out, and thus stopping the yuppie demons. And right here, it's really unsubtle yuppie demons that are literally racing each other and 
they start off by killing a jogger who owes them their soul and you talk about the rat race you're seeing it right there but i'm taken to v for vendetta and watchmen with their commentary on 80s english political systems and here they're talking about maggie thatcher and her what her re-election would do and how the demons would profit this is what delano's really known for this is his style this kind of social commentary what's interesting is he would finish hellblazer at the same time that maggie thatcher was voted out of office this is a common thing with a lot of these british writers that very socially aware one of the things that changed the mood in 80s comics we talked about the dark knight returns and how it was just darker and involved the politics at the time with the cold war this is really of its time and it's fun i enjoy reading about yuppie demons it's not scary but it is humorous it's not even veiled social commentary but i enjoy it i wouldn't want 300 issues of this but i could go with it for one i agree i mean i liked it i hate to say it but i think i've learned the most i know about british politics in the 80s from alan moore and now these comics i'm an american and product of the public school system we didn't study other countries even at the time we were so focused on our own i knew about america i knew about russia and everybody else be damned and so i liked this i feel it was a bit ahead of its time coming out in 88 about eight years later this exact same parable would be told in another Keanu Reeves movie, The Devil's Advocate, where you have other demons chasing another jogger. And I was reading this issue wondering if the writers of that movie might have been inspired by an old Hellblazer comic. It was fun, but very lightweight. And when I'm comparing it to V for Vendetta and Watchmen, it's obviously lesser because it's more slapstick. And I'm not quite sure how this whole ending happened. It was a confusing ending. Like the demons, the market bottoms out and Constantine's left tied up. I'm like, I'm not following what's going on even with two readings. Oh, I'll be honest. I didn't get it at all. I did not understand this deal he made or how his soul was saying. I don't know. The bottom fell out. I don't know what that means. I don't know how it happened, but okay. I don't understand soul selling, nor do I understand the commodities market. So I was lost. The one thing that really hit home with me for this, and I think it would have really connected to an American audience, is this issue came out just a couple months after the huge stock market crash of the late 80s, when the stockbrokers were jumping out of the windows and everything. And so, obviously, because of the publication time of comics, it was written before and just a really lucky break, but it was really topical for Americans. Yeah, maybe Delano made a deal with the devil so he could get a glimpse of the future. I think my favorite chapter in this graphic novel comes number four, Waiting for the Man. And what's interesting about that title, it's actually I'm Waiting for the Man is a Velvet Underground the band. It's one of their song titles. And I noticed some other titles as we were reading these stories were named after more underground bands. Again, another thing with UK writers, Warren Ellis did this a lot. He would name each story arc after a popular alternative a band song or something like that so i went back and started looking at all the titles it doesn't go throughout all these titles but every once in a while they do pick a cool song name to name the comic after i would agree completely with you that this issue waiting for the man is my favorite issue of this entire arc and it is really different from the three that came before because it talks about Gamma Masters, an unhappy little girl whose father joined the Resurrection Crusade, a religious cult, and moved her out to the suburbs. But when she meets some older children, she runs away from home to marry a mysterious old man stranger. 
but Gamma's uncle is John Constantine, who races to save his sister's daughter. Accompanied by Zed, a sexy, mysterious woman John had just started dating after meeting her in an alley, the two find Gamma about to be strangled by the man who sacrifices his wives in the name of the Damnation Army, a demon-worshipping cult. Constantine and Zed save Gamma, and the Resurrection Crusade members then storm and burn his house. And this is really where, if we were to say Original Sins has a story arc, I would say this is the issue that kicks it off. Because in this issue, we're introduced to big things that are going to weigh heavily on the rest of this entire graphic novel, including Zed, the Damnation Army, and the Resurrection Crusade. Yeah, this is where you feel like... If this was an original graphic novel or if there was a complete story here, this is where it would really start to form. And I think that's part of the reason I like it. It finally gave me these different factions that I'm like, ooh, what's going to happen next with this Damnation's Army or this religious cult? The other thing I like is just it's a nice one-off horror story. These teenage ghost girls pick up this other girl and she's going to get married and she's kind of like, her mind's warped when she gets into this decaying house and this, I don't know if he's a demon or possessed by a demon, he's going to suffocate her and kill her and she'll become one of his wives. Like, there's just a creepiness about this that I would expect in a Hellblazer comic. If this guy's all about magic and going after demons, like, this is just a nice, creepy issue. Even if it didn't have all the cool other story points, all these different groups starting to come in that are building up this universe. Yeah, later on they say these three older girls that approach Gamma, they're dead, right? They were killed by this man. And their bodies were in the house, but these were like ghosts of those bodies. Yeah, it's a wonderful story because, again, I'm equating these episodes to Twilight Zone episodes or Tales from the Crypt, and this one very specifically reminds me of like that or the old hitchhiker tale or Tales from the Dark Side, any of them, because it has a supernatural element in that these ghost girls are basically going out to recruit more wives to die and be with them, but the evil here is not supernatural. It's a very human evil. It's from a demon-worshipping cult, but he's not using demons to kill people. He's tying a rope around little girls' necks and strangling them. And Constantine, we've seen him fight demons. We know he's smart, we know he's slick, but... Here, he's racing against the clock to save his relative, not just any little girl, but his sister's daughter, from this, I'm taking from it, if they're his wives, he's not only a murderer, but a child molester as well. It's just dark. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the wedding ring refers to, like, the rope burn around the girl's necks as they get strangled, it really is creepy. And what I also find interesting is Constantine just doesn't walk in and do a spell and saves the day. He gets his ass kicked. Yeah, Zed, the female, is the one who really saves the day. I mean, together, they use their magic to find the house, which is really the only magic we see here. But it's limiting, and as with magic in so many fiction sources, it doesn't give them exact directions. They have a child lead them there for five quid. But when they get there, yeah, it takes both of them to overpower this guy. She hits him with a bottle. I gotta say, I mean, if you're gonna read one story here, because these are so separate and they don't really go together, if you don't want to read those first three, if you want to just pick one here, see if you're interested, I'd say start with Waiting for the Man. And then I'd say... Stop before issue five when Johnny comes marching home. Weird issue. It is. It's like an issue from a totally different comic. Because where 
in issue four, he was in London saving his niece from a homicidal maniac. In issue five, he's in a small Midwestern American town. He's come to the U.S. to meet his old friend, the Swamp Thing, and he ends up in this town whose children were all drafted into the Vietnam War and killed. And hopeless, they joined the religious group, the Resurrection Crusade, the only tie this has to other Constantine issues, and they're all hoping for a miracle that their sons will come home. And their sons do come home, raised from the dead. The soldiers still believe they're in Nam. And they see Charlie instead of their loved ones and begin a mass slaughter while Constantine is helpless to do anything but hide in the corn and watch. If number three was funny because of its yuppie commentary, here the commentary is just way too obvious, too heavy-handed. Oh, you go off to war, that war is going to come home with you. I mean, it's too literal for me in this story. I agree it's too literal. Again, I'm really getting this episodic Twilight Zone kind of feel because this feels like it could be one of those episodes. The ghosts of the war come home. And it's really strange, though, that Constantine, he doesn't do anything here. He kind of figures out what's going on. But yeah, he just hides in corn and watches these people get slaughtered. Yeah, you say strange. I say bad. I say that's bad writing. I say this isn't a Constantine or Hellblazer story. This is a one-off horror story that I would expect to have read in the EC comics of years past. But to have your main character completely ineffectual in an entire story, a story that he should be involved in because it's the Resurrection Crusade that is co-opted his brother-in-law and his sister and instead he's literally hiding in the corn and it's not even a light-hearted issue with a title like when johnny comes marching home you might expect some kind of irony or humor no this has one guy who raped a vietnamese woman and because of that he was the only member of his troop not to get slaughtered he made it home he also goes back and has these non-flashbacks and rapes his wife before he kills her. Yeah, it, it's dark, to say the least. I guess my biggest problem is, in 1988, Vietnam was kind of overplayed. We had Platoon, Full Metal Jacket had come before. Even in comics, Marvel Comics was doing the NAM. It felt like some Me Tooism. And while I feel a Brit is completely well versed to speak to the British political system. I'm not quite sure how to read a Brit telling America, hey, your son's raped and murdered in Vietnam, and if they came home, they'd rape and murder you. Yeah, it's always a tricky situation when you have someone from one country trying to comment on what another country did. I mean, as Americans, we're going to get our defenses up. It's a tricky situation. I don't think it's handled very well here. Again, it's heavy-handed. As good as the yuppie issue three was, this one, it's not a bad issue. For a horror story, it's fine. I don't really know if it has a commentary, other than America is haunted by the ghosts of Vietnam, which we already knew. It's not telling me anything an American didn't know, but it doesn't fit in this arc. It does not fit in a Hellblazer run. It feels so fit for just an anthology comic. But things do get back on track with issue six. And this is where Constantine's back in London. I think I'm always happiest when he's in London. I just find it so confusing sometimes because he's in America and then boom, he's in London. Like, I never see him get paid for doing exorcisms or anything. I just wonder how he could travel so fast. Maybe he does a magic spell and he teleports. Later on, they show him actually, like, doing street gambling and winning thousands. So, I think he just grifts. But... 
In this one, the Damnation Army's lead demon Nurgle wants Constantine's girlfriend Zed, and to get her, they send the Iron Fist. No, not the green-clad Marvel hero, but four neo-Nazi skinheads merged into an eight-armed, four-headed monster. Constantine stops the beast in a really humorous way, but in doing so, he's marked for Nurgle for helping Zed. So, if Johnny comes marching home, it's kind of, I don't know if this is a British guy's place to be commentating on Americans in Vietnam. Soccer hooligans and skinheads, yep, you're right at home. You could talk about this all you want. I love how he handles this villain. I mean, these skinheads, they, what, merge into a single body by these demons. And then, again, Constantine doesn't use any magic, just points out, hey, you guys have conflicting football team tattoos on you, and it just ends up tearing itself apart. Yeah, I love that. And I'm just going to give them kudos for good writing, because as we talked about earlier, this is still very dense with prose. And when we're introduced to these soccer hooligans, it talks about how on game day, these guys are the bitterest of enemies because of different football teams. But today they are best friends hating gays. (laughs) Not that it's funny to hate gays, but yes, the humor is that Soccer is the one thing that will not unite them, but hate and prejudice, yes, they could get behind that and come together. And in fact, yeah, this is a very liberal comic. We'll be talking about another gay character very shortly. It is extraordinarily liberal, especially for the time, especially being published by DC Comics, an American company letting these Brits have this liberal say. We were very deep in Reagan-Bush-era America at this point. So no, I'm not laughing about them hating gays. I'm laughing that that's what they bond over. And what they fight over. They bond over causes that are incredibly horrible, and yet they fight to the death over causes that are a little silly. But hey, that's what soccer hooligans do. And so yeah, that Constantine literally breaks them up by getting them to tear themselves limb from limb because of the different teams. Well, that's what you get when you go against the Manchester United. And I do like, again, there's some world building going on, but this is still back in the days when there weren't really graphic novels. You could just pick this issue up, read it, get a sense of the character, who he is. He's a smart ass the way he defeats these amalgamated soccer hooligan skinheads. You get a sense of all that. There's things in the background. There's more stuff about this army. We still don't really know what's going on, except that they're starting to get more aggressive. So I like that it's world building, but it doesn't seem like I've had to read everything before this. Yeah, because they also world build in this way because this is where John and Zed consummate their relationship in some fairly graphic comic book sex. Yep, and this is, I think this is still before Vertigo came about. Vertigo is a mature imprint for DC, which was really the roots of it started in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. He had some plant on human sex and that, and Hellblazer pushed it even further. And this also completely sets up the final arc here because once Constantine realizes Nurgle is after Zed, he takes her over to Ray's. And Ray is a older gentleman, a friend of Constantine's, who it turns out has AIDS. Yeah, this was pretty shocking. Like, 
this is what, 87, 88, so I, I guess AIDS was becoming more of an acknowledged thing. You know, I think in the 80s is when it really started to come to the forefront of public awareness, but for a comic book, wow, I was shocked that you would have this character with AIDS. The way I kind of define it is, yes, in the 80s we knew about AIDS, in the late 80s especially, I hate to say it, but it's when straight people started coming down with AIDS. But I really draw a line in history with the movie Philadelphia. Because before Philadelphia came out, AIDS was a news topic. But I don't remember it coming up on those early episodes of L.A. Law or anything. Whereas after Philadelphia, on ER, which was the L.A. Law of the 90s, you'd have a main character on the show living with AIDS and show what happens when she's diagnosed and how she has to take her meds and deal with her antibody count. So for this to come five years before Philadelphia... I consider that to be groundbreaking, that they would dare approach it in comics. Again, with that comic code authority and everything, I know this is a mature reader comic, but this is truly mature, not titillating. You know, you think mature, you think they're just going to say fuck a lot and maybe show some nipple. But no, this is dealing with adult topics in an adult way, in a comic book dealing with magic. I got to give them some kudos for that. Yeah, again, if you're expecting tights and capes and people flying around and punching each other, no. A lot of this, it's very dialogue-heavy, very prose-heavy even, as we've discussed. Of course, you're going to get the action scene at the end where he defeats a demon, but even sometimes he doesn't defeat that demon through action. He'll trick it to tear itself apart, or he'll do something with the stock market. Like you said, you're not sure what happened there, but this is a very different tone for comics. If you're into more dark, horror, gothic stuff, this is your bag, I think. But... With the last few issues in the final arc, and these issues, depending on which version of the publication you have, may actually include two issues of Swamp Thing as well. The later printings of the graphic novel do include two Swamp Thing issues. I kind of find that its world building starts to collapse in upon itself. Because here, we reveal the mystery of Zed and her connection to the Resurrection Crusade. And it turns out Zed's real name is Mary, as in the Virgin Mary. And she's the chosen one marked to conceive the next messiah. Zed wants no part of this destiny, but she's kidnapped by the Resurrection Crusade to mate with an angel. And Constantine tries to rescue her, but... And Jacob, you're going to have to tell me if you understand this. He's haunted by ghosts. Now, the ghosts have been around since the very beginning issue. Issue 1, the people Constantine have caused to be killed, I guess, according to Wiki, some of these ghosts are from previous issues of Swamp Thing, where Constantine was fighting a monster and some of his friends died. Yeah, I think it does show Lester at one point. He joins um That's what I got. These were ghosts of friends that Constantine, I, I think one of the jokes people make is if you're a friend of his, you're going to end up dead. That's just one of his things. He cursed his father, who he's angry at. Him and his father didn't get along, and his father died from this curse. You don't want to be friends with Constantine, because you're going to end up dead. And yeah, I do like how these ghosts, they do haunt him, but sometimes they help him, but that he is actually terrified. He, he does feel some guilt for it. Yeah, and this terror makes him jump off a moving train and break nearly every bone in his body. And he's hospitalized, institutionalized, near death, when the demon Nurgle visits him and demands Constantine help stop the Resurrection Crusade. Because if they can prevent the conception of the Messiah, then Nurgle can rule, and Constantine is forced to agree to help Zed, but in order to be able to do anything, Nurgle has to first heal him of all these wounds he got jumping off the train. So Nurgle uses demon blood 
to heal Constantine, injecting the demon blood into Constantine's veins and making Constantine whole and, in fact, briefly superhuman. It's like he gets a rush off the demon blood. But he's torn. He's emotionally unready to go to battle against the Resurrection Crusade, and he does eventually go to visit Mary, who has been brainwashed and wants to fulfill her destiny with the Resurrection Crusade. But before he leaves, she sleeps with him one last time, and the demon blood in Constantine taints Mary, making her unworthy to the angel, and the angel kills everyone in the Resurrection Crusade. But and this gets fuzzy. I think to fend off Nurgle, a baby had to be conceived. Babies are conceived every few minutes. I guess it had to be specifically Swamp Thing's weed baby. And so Swamp Thing inhabits Constantine's body to sleep with Swamp Thing's girlfriend, Alicia. And then Constantine takes his own body back over, mid-coitus. Yeah, in some publications, this ends at number nine, where Swamp Thing shows up at the very end in the form of Tobacco Swamp Thing, which is funny because Constantine is a smoker, and I, I love how he just picks a piece of Swamp Thing off so you could roll it into a fag, as you would call it. He uses the British term fag for whenever he wants to smoke. But as much as I like those Swamp Thing issues where Constantine was created, really, ah, I don't like this crossover. It's weird. Yeah, it gets murky. I don't understand how he's possessed by Swamp Thing who cleans out his bad breath. <laughs> so his girlfriend will want to make out with them. Swamp Thing and his chick, they have sex in that comic. Maybe there's something you needed a human host to do this. I don't get it. I think it's weaker going into this crossover. I so much into Damnation's army and the Resurrection Crusade. I wish there was a whole story there because that's what really gripped me. I was enjoying this until I got it off onto this whole weird tangent with Swamp Thing. As much as I like Swamp Thing, I just don't like this story. I don't really like any of these last few issues because they feel disjointed by crossing over with Swamp Thing and it does it several times when Constantine jumps off the train Swamp Thing is the one who takes him to the hospital and it makes me feel like I'm missing something that's even not in this graphic novel and I don't know what it is. It's the issues of Swamp Thing you haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> I went back and kind of flipped through the Swamp Thing issues. I went to my comic store, yanked a few old issues around this time. I don't see Swamp Thing carrying Constantine to a hospital, but there's some reference to it. But even within Constantine himself, I don't get why, after dealing with these ghosts for six issues, now all of a sudden they've pissed him off to the point that he's going to jump off a moving train? He's going to forget he's on a train because of these ghosts? And then it goes to this weird place where it's like they're institutionalizing him for believing in demons and for having this narcissistic personality. So he has to break out of a psychiatric ward in a full body cast. I do know that in England, and I don't know when they repealed it, but you could get people institutionalized pretty easily against their will. In the U.S., you have to commit yourself or has to be a court order. But you used to be able to, in England, get people institutionalized. So maybe it's just a disconnect between American and and British sociology. That is possible, but I'm still not quite sure why he agrees to Nurgle's deal. And then once he agrees, 
I'm really confused when instead of going to rescue this woman who he's fallen in love with, he loves Zed. It's a true human connection. Zed is the first person I believe Constantine wouldn't kill. And instead of going to save her from this religious cult, he's torn about it for reasons I just don't get. I'm right there with you, Arnie. Things are fuzzy here. I was reading the pages. I wasn't getting everything. And it wasn't engaging me as much as those earlier issues. Now, it's weird because I wanted to start to tell a full story. I like these different factions, but once it gets into that story, it kind of loses me. A good build-up, not a very satisfying end. Yeah, I really felt there was no end. The only reason I went to the Swamp Thing issues, I'd seen that it was one through nine, got that used graphic novel, and when I ended issue nine, I'm like, so what the hell happened? He slept with her, and then he hypothesizes that his demon blood marked her unworthy, but we never see what happens to her in these nine issues. And in fact, I had to go back. I knew they'd had sex because there's this really weird scene in this arc where Constantine, I think he's having a dream of he and Zed having sex in a movie theater and he's tearing her flesh off and tearing her down to her bones while still screwing her. This is not like hinted at. There's like graphic panels of him performing caningulus on a skeleton on the pelvic bone. Yes, this is not for little kids. They go into sex positions off of this skeleton dripping blood. It's... Pretty horrific looking. Yeah, and there were the earlier scenes in issue six where they're naked in bed having sex. So I knew these two had consummated their relationship, but briefly they say that Mary is supposed to be a virgin and that Constantine screwed that up. And so... At another point, they kind of hint that this sex in the tree is what stopped it because it was the demon blood. I would think just making Mary unpure would have been enough. Yeah, they make a big deal about her having sex one time, but it's, I guess, not enough for them to stop bringing about the second messiah. It's not clear at all. No, and that's really disappointing. The Swamp Thing issues only serve to heighten my confusion as I tried reading them. I've never read Swamp Thing. That's not the place to start. And he shows up here at the end of issue 9. I didn't know it was even Swamp Thing. I didn't know Swamp Thing could be a tobacco demon and a money demon. I thought he was a weed, a plant demon. And so I didn't even get that it was Swamp Thing at the end of issue 9 until I read the Swamp Thing issues. Yeah, I mean, they refer back to Moore's run where he created a blue planet. Like, he goes traveling through space at some point and creates an entire replica of Earth out of blue space algae. Yeah, they refer back to some stuff that if you haven't read those old Swamp Thing issues, I could just see you being lost. And that's why I wish it would have stopped at nine. I don't know how it would pick up after that since it goes over into Swamp Thing, but not a good ending here. I think we both agree on that. Yeah, I did end up previewing some issue 10 to see if there was more. It was so unfulfilling that I felt there had to be more to the story, and they do show Constantine's astral spirit seeing Mary get killed along with all the others by the pissed-off angel. But it's told in almost flashback and just so unfulfilling. But that said, as far as these issues of Hellblazer go, while I felt the storytelling was starting to fall apart and... The big arc came to a really unsatisfying conclusion. I found myself wanting to read issue 10. I wanted to continue. It wasn't a, I love this so much I want to continue, but much like the movie itself, I was in this world and I was enjoying the exploration even if every storytelling beat didn't hit home. I was liking the comic. 
Oh, I'll totally agree. I can't recommend this as a fulfilling story, but I definitely think people should check it out. If you're into horror, if you're into suspense, if you're just into darker stories, this is definitely something worth checking out just to see if it's your taste. Again, not a great story, but it will give you a good flavor of Constantine and if you should go on and get more deeper into Hellblazer. I'm going to admit that after this, the next thing to read for me was Dangerous Habits because that's our next podcast. But while I'm lukewarm on Original Sins, it's the beginning. I kind of feel comic books are like TV shows and you need to give them a season or a year for the cast to come together, the writers to get their pacing and the characters to be fully formed. I'm wanting to see where Hellblazer goes. And so while I'm jumping ahead to Dangerous Habits next, I plan on coming back and reading more of Jamie Delano's run as well. And I'll say I had the opportunity to get an almost complete run. They haven't released the last few graphic novels, but to get it at a pretty good price, a a ton of issues in graphic novel form for Hellblazer. And this one got my interest up enough that I did purchase that. So I have a ton of Hellblazer now to get through. Because, again, lukewarm on this, but loving the character. So we're both going to be reading this. Hell, who knows? Maybe we'll come back to books and nachos again (laughs) and some point in time and just chat it up because I don't know that I've, other than new releases, ever read comics at the same time as somebody else. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Remember, over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear Jacob, I, and Stuart discuss the movie version, Constantine. That's up now at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And we will be back later this week to talk more Hellblazer with Garth Ennis's first arc, Dangerous Habits. So until next time, support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.